Hello and happy Sunday. It is February 25th. I'm Mary Morton and welcome to Living Out Loud. I am excited to welcome today uh, John D'Amelio, um, internationally known historian um, who I've known for many years. And I'm, I'm just excited to welcome you to the show. Hi, John. Hello. Well, I'm so glad to have the opportunity to be here today. So we are going to talk a little bit first about your background and how you got here. Um, and we're going to spend the majority of our time, however, talking about a subject near and dear to your heart, someone near and dear to your heart, Byard Rustin. That's right. And so you've written a book that we'll talk in greater detail about, but I do want to start at the beginning of the hour and say the name of the book is Lost Prophet, The Life and Times of Byard Rustin. Uh, and this book was written in 2003, and I'm happy to say I have my own copy here that was inscribed uh, very, um, just consider- in such a considerate manner by John in 2003. So we've had this book for a while. But John, let's let's go back for a moment, and as we like to do, and have a little host chat here and, and talk about your background. So you've been in Chicago since, did you say December of 99 or 99? Summer of 99. Summer of 99, okay. And you were at UIC as a professor. What were you What were you teaching at UIC? Uh, I was in the Gender and Women's Studies program and the History Department and basically teaching LGBTQ history courses, uh, histories of social movements and activism, things like that. Wonderful. But how did you get to Chicago? Because you, I, I think I first knew of you from uh, the task force and the Policy Institute. So tell us a little bit about your background. You were actually born uh, in New York. Right. I was uh, born in the Bronx, raised in the Bronx, an Italian family. Uh, I then went to college uh, and graduate school in New York City as well. I stayed there uh, at Columbia. And it was being in the protest movements of the 60s, especially the anti-war movement, made me think that I wanted to study history. I wanted to understand how the my country, the U.S., got to this place of doing these terrible things. Um, and so I started graduate school in the early 70s. And a couple of years into graduate school, I connected with some gay and lesbian activists who said, we're going to have a meeting to talk about how research could help the gay liberation mm-hmm. movement. Uh, I went to that meeting We kept meeting for years, uh, created the Gay Academic Union, and I decided I am going to do LGBTQ history. That's what I'm going to study in graduate school and research. Incredible. And did you have any um, pushback or concerns about that being your direction at, at that time? Well, from the department, my dissertation advisor, William Luchtenberg, was incredibly supportive and helpful from the beginning. It was truly extraordinary. But I also had the sense that the likelihood of ever getting an academic job doing this kind of work was very slim. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't particularly interested at that point in being an academic. I was happy doing my research and writing and uh, getting jobs that supported the research and the writing. Um, But then eventually I did get an academic job. And you also did work um, in organizations like uh, the task force um, because you you had a hand in helping to start the Policy Institute. Right. I, I was on the board of directors of NGLTF from 88 to 93, so I knew the staff and the work that was being done very well. And a couple of years later, the director of the organization just contacted me and said, we would like to 
create a policy institute at the task force. Would you be willing to come and do it? And at that point, I was really ready to take a break from academic life and move back to a big city. I was living in Greensboro, North Carolina at that point. And so, yeah, I did it. Um, And I did it for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to actually get back to the Bayard Rustin book that I was working on. Oh, okay. You were working on it at that time. So then I think we met at some point during Creating Change, which, for those of you who don't know, is the largest gathering of LGBTQ folks in the world, I believe. Uh, and um, it's an annual conference, um, that one that I had read about for years in The Advocate. And when I became uh, Mayor Daly's liaison to the uh, LGBTQ community, I thought, oh, now I can go. Like, I can, uh, there's a reason for me to go. Like, someone will send me to the conference. That wasn't absolutely the case, but I went anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, just was exposed to so many extraordinary folks. Uh, and that work also then um, led to some of my work around uh, the Hall of Fame, uh, mm-hmm. which I know you've been involved with and have been inducted to, uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame here in Chicago. Um, but I think where we really spent most of our time uh, is through the work with the Illinois Safe Schools Alliance. Um, I'm a co-founder for that organization and had left the organization, came back to the board, and, and you were on the board. And how did you get to Safe Schools Alliance. Right. I was on the board for several years. Somebody that I worked with at UIC, Stacy Horn, oh, yes. was Stacey. very involved oh, my goodness. With, yes. with the organization. And when she was leaving Chicago, she said to me, you might want to get involved with this. And oh, wow. so I, I joined the board and it was a wonderful opportunity um, because one of the things that I was able to do, therefore, was I spoke to lots of groups of high school students about LGBTQ history, which, of course, they knew nothing about. And so it was it was thrilling. It was thrilling to see their excitement. That's right. And the work of the alliance continues today. Um, Several years ago, we merged with the Public Health Institute of Metropolitan Chicago, and it's been a a lovely uh, union, if you will. And so that work around policy and um, support for teachers and young people in schools has continued. And of course, now we have the LGBTQ curriculum law. Did you ever think you would see something like that? Never imagined that something like that would happen. (laughs) And it's, uh, of course, it's not happening everywhere, but here in Illinois, California, and a few other states, it it is going to create significant change. That's right. And so, again, we talk about young people having possibility models, having representation, and this is one of the ways uh, that that will happen. So excited to uh, know that that work is you know, going to continue uh, for many years to come. How does one then become a, a historian, if you will? Because that is, I mean, that's how you're introduced often, right, as a, a, an historian. And, and how does that title sit with you? Yeah. Well, there are. There are two different routes to being a historian. The most common one, and this is what leads to being a historian within the higher education world, the academic world, is you go to graduate school and you take courses, you pass exams, you pick a dissertation topic, you research it for three or four years, write it, and get your PhD. Uh, But there are also many people who are self-trained historians, are community-based historians. And two good examples of this uh, in the field of LGBTQ history, one is Jonathan Ned Katz, who is sort of the grandfather of queer history. Mm -hmm. 
Jonathan doesn't even have a graduate degree. He never went to graduate school, but he trained himself to do research and write. And Alan Barabee, who wrote a book called uh, Coming Out Under Fire, Mm -hmm. which is a history of gay, lesbian, and bisexual people in the military during World War II. Again, no graduate school. He just loved history and self-trained. Now, I'm I'm curious to know if you think folks who haven't been through, and I use air quotes here, the academy, are considered with the same uh, level of importance as someone who has had the academic uh, backing, if you will, and experiences. They're they're different worlds. Mm -hmm. The worlds don't intersect that much. So, really? yeah, there's the there's this net more narrow academic world that is, quote, professional historians who speak to each other at conferences. Mm-hmm. And some of those academic historians write in ways that only other academics will enjoy and okay. accept. Uh, but others of us, and I include myself in this group, try to write in a way that will be accessible to anybody who likes to read a book. Okay. Um, and and so some of us do interact well with the public historians who are not part of the academic world. And so tell us, um, before we go to break, and we're going to come back, as I said, and talk really all about Bayard Rustin over this next hour, how did you get to the point of saying, I'm going to write this book about Bayard Rustin? Well, I didn't intend to. I wanted to write a book about the 1960s. In the second half of the 80s, I was teaching an undergraduate course on the 60s. And students at that point, you know, who was the Reagan era, Mm. things were conservative. They loved reading about ordinary people rising up in protest. And I thought, I want to write a book about the 60s unlike what's out there now that mixes together the different movements. And so initially I picked Bayard because he was a figure who crossed those different lines. Mm -hmm. He, racial justice, anti-nuclear, international peace, labor unions. And I thought writing about Bayard will allow me to touch all of these different lines of protest And then at a certain point, Bayard won. (laughs) And I was so captured by his life that I realized, well, yes, I'll write about the 60s in his life, but I want to write a biography of this extraordinary individual. And how long did it take to write the biography? Uh, The the research and the writing, plus, you know, I had these other jobs. So it's spread out over a period of 12 years. 12 years. Okay. Well, you know, I I feel encouraged by that because I'm working on a film. It's taken me a while. Um, But you were working on it just little by little, right? I had some stretches where I could work on it full time, really Mm -hmm. do the research. Right. But then I had other years where I was teaching doing the Policy Institute work. and so Oh, so you were writing it all during that time? That was part, oh, okay. of, part of the period, yeah. Okay. And then what was the reception uh, when, you, when you were finished and published? And Well, it, got, it really got, I have to say, wonderful reviews. Uh, it was nominated for the National Book Award in nonfiction, which I thought, oh, my God, when I got that phone call, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Uh, so in that respect, it was very well received. Um, it didn't get a large readership. Like uh-huh. it didn't wasn't a bestseller mm-hmm. in any sense. Mm-hmm. But it's meant it's meant something important to the people who have read it. 
because I often hear from people who have read the biography and they'll write, send me an email, sometimes even a letter and say, thank you so much. This was so revealing. Wonderful. Well, we're going to continue talking about uh, the life and times of Bayard Rustin. We're going to talk a a little bit about the new film, Rustin. Uh, But you are listening to Living Out Loud. I'm Mary Morton here with John D'Amelio, and we're back in a moment. Gina Torres. And when I'm in Chicago, I listen to Mary Morton on WCPT 820 AM. I love Gina Torres. Thank you very much. Uh, Gina will be back on television for sure um, in the fall on um, 9-11 Lone Star. Um, But you may have seen her in a couple of commercials more recently. I think she may have been in a um, Super Bowl commercial and a couple of other things, but she's just all around uh, a lovely person and so happy she could do that promo for me. So you're back to Living Out Loud. I'm Mary Morton, and I'm excited to have John D'Amelio here today. And we are going to really get into um, a little more about Bayard Rustin. And let's start by talking about the film Rustin, uh, where Coleman Domingo, you know, has received an Oscar nomination, which is wonderful. Tell me what you thought about the film. I loved it. I thought they did an excellent job of creating a a biopic that really captured who Bayard Rustin was and what the challenges were that he faced in the world of activism. They, instead of trying to do his entire life, which would have been impossible, Mm -hmm. they focused on this critical moment in history, which audience members would be familiar with, the 1963 March on Washington, Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, and but focused on Bayard, who was the key organizer of that march. And that's what I think 
continues to surprise people today. I remember when I learned that, and I was certainly, you know, an adult by many, many years, um, and it may have been, you know, as a result of, of your book, that people had no understanding, had no knowledge, didn't even know the name Bayard Rustin. That's right. And there are a variety of reasons for that. I mean, one is uh, uh, an okay reason, is that as a Quaker, part mm. of Quaker philosophy is you get the work done, you don't push yourself forward. But also, working in the international peace movement and the black freedom struggle in the 40s, 50s, and 60s as a gay man who refused to deny that he was a gay man, uh, he kept himself in the background rather than put himself forward. But his skills were such that A. Philip Randolph, who was the key leader pushing for a march on Washington— knew that Bayard would organize it better than any other person on the planet. And yet had to really sell. Is it, is it, do I recall correctly that they not only had to sell everyone else on that idea, but also Bayard as well? No, they didn't have to sell Bayard. Okay, so he wanted to do it. Yeah, Bayard, Bayard and Randolph together were talking about the March on Washington. Okay. It was, it was, the idea came from the two of them together, but... In terms of pushing it to the larger civil rights movement, that required Randolph doing that rather than Bayard. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and what, you know, my favorite scenes in the film mm-hmm. are when uh, Bayard is in the office with this mass of young people, yes. young adults who are organizing, and he speaks to them. And you can see the excitement and enthusiasm in their faces. And they're going to get out there and work and work and work. And, you know, I, I interviewed maybe 30 people for the book, and almost all of them used at least once in the interview the word charisma mm. to describe Bayard, uh-huh. that he had a quality that just motivated and inspired and activated people. And drew people in. Yes. And you could see it in those scenes in the movie. It just... So you thought that translated perfectly or very well. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Okay. And were there other scenes that you thought, okay, maybe I would have handled this a little differently or, in fact... You were pretty happy with how they did most of the the connection to his work and, and his history. Well, no, I was pretty happy with what they did because they were willing to confront very directly the opposition that Bayard faced within the mainstream civil rights movement because of his gayness and how that created conflicts and, you know, how it— Many times it was like, will I be able to stay in this role? The one thing that I had reservations for and was puzzled by, and afterwards I actually contacted Bayard's surviving partner, Walter, uh, to ask him what he thought, is that I, I told him, I said, you know, they portray this affair that Bayard has with a young black minister, mm-hmm. but I don't right. remember anything about that in the records. And Walter said, no, you're correct. It didn't happen. Oh, really? It was used as a dramatic device mm-hmm. for showing the way at that time within the religious community how difficult it was to accept homosexuality. So here is Bayard falling in love with a young man who aspires to be a minister and 
it demonstrated that this can't happen. So they used they used it to reveal the larger history, even though it was not true. Is that the only thing that really stands out as something that you didn't under you didn't experience or know anything about when you were doing all of your research? Yeah, that's that's the only part of the film that didn't correspond to what I know historically. The rest of it was really quite accurate, I thought. And how do you feel about them using that as a dramatic device? Well, I can understand it because it allowed them in a way that, you know, this is film, this is a movie. It allowed them to take a key theme that otherwise might not have fit into that period of time in mm-hmm. terms of the real events in Rustin's life and dramatize it for an audience. So, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, it wouldn't have been necessary, but it worked. I and, and at the end of the day, it is supposed to be entertainment. That's right. Right. And so what how are you drawing people in? I think my concern would be that that falls back on some of the, you know, some of the the history that we certainly know has happened in the church, um, because we, you know, certainly know that lots of people are in the closet, if you will, that are in the church. And I'm using air quotes there. Um, So I I think my only concern would have been, and I didn't know that it wasn't true, right? That it in some way um, sensationalized it, but but I don't think they 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 uh, sort of belabored it, if you will. But to your point, it was enough to just make sure people understood this was the tone and tenor of that period. That's right. That's right. It did it. It did it in an effective way without going over the top and being completely ridiculous in right. terms of dramatic presentation. And and what do you think having Coleman Domingo nominated uh, means about not only the incredible job that he did, but I mean, this is certainly related to the topic as well. Oh, well, I think, first of all, his performance for anybody who hasn't seen the film the performance in itself is a reason to see the film independently of the content. He's so incredible. Absolutely. He just captures the complexity of the personality and the events and gives you a sense of the fullness of Rustin as a human being and an activist. And there were times when I thought, wait a minute, is this Bayard on the screen? He was so convincing. Um, and it's wonderful that he's been nominated. I, you know, I hope and I pray he gets it. Who knows whether that will actually happen? Well, I've seen it once, um, but I, I need to see it again because it's it's just a film I would, would want to see again. And I was so um, you know engaged throughout that I still thought I'm missing some pieces here. So I definitely want to see it again. I want to encourage everyone to see it. Now you, you've seen it a few times, right? I've seen it three times, actually. And, <laughs> I love that. Uh, I, I loved it uh, a couple of times because I was asked to speak at an event, uh, at events. But then uh, the third time, I enjoyed it so much, I brought my three best friends to come see it with me. So Wonderful. Yeah. And so, as you said, they really focused on one particular time period it's best because as you know sometimes in biopics they try to do too much Mm -hmm. Um, but they really focused on the time around the march and when we come back from break we're going to talk a little bit more about all these other areas of uh, Byatt Rustin's life that we don't know about because I think you know I think the term you used when we were talking about the show 
in the last week or so was the interconnectedness of all his work. And I said, that really is what, for many of us now, we refer to as intersectionality. That's right. Right. And, and before that term was coined, mm-hmm. Rustin was living it and, and putting it out there as this is what we need to be doing. And it is such a strong message that I hope uh, the LGBTQ community can hear, because I think when we think about some of our more recent uh, legislative efforts, uh, we have not done it in the most inclusive manner. Uh, and to understand that we need to show up for everyone else as well. Right. That's, We're that's all right. in this together. We want to lift all boats that's at right. the same time. So we're going to continue our conversation about Bayard Rustin in just a moment. You're listening to WCPT 820 AM. This is Living Out Loud. We're back in a moment. comedian extraordinaire and when I'm in the Chicago I like to hang out with my good friend Mary Morton on her fantastic show Living Out Loud on WCPT so listen welcome back everyone you're listening to Living Out Loud I'm Mary Morton here with John D'Amelio and I just have to say a quick story about uh, Gina Yashere who you just heard in that promo I had a chance to go to the show that Gina is the co-runner I'm sorry the showrunner I should say for which is Bob Hart's Abishola it is back live on Monday nights at 7.30pm on CBS and I want to encourage everyone to check it out um, this is one of the few times we'll ever have uh, a Nigerian uh, comic uh, who identifies as queer running a show uh, and uh, just want to get folks over to Channel 2. Um, this is their last season. They've been on for five years and um, they've had a, a great run and they're going to go out in a 
incredible way uh, this season. So check out uh, Bob Hart's Abishola on Monday evenings. But we're going to get back to Byard Rustin. And one of the things that I think is still unknown, in, in addition to folks still slowly you know, coming to understand who Byard Rustin was, is that he did not start his work in the civil rights movement. He was doing it in a variety of other areas. Um, and as I said right before our break, really gives credence to the term that we use now that was coined uh, more recently by Kimberly Crenshaw of intersectionality, that we don't just show up, right, uh, with one identity. Um, we have many identities or several identities and we are connected into different movements um, because we understand that um, we need to be working on everyone's behalf, not just our own. And so let's talk a little bit about the other areas of Bayard's life that people simply don't know about. Well, sure. Um, Well, first of all, just, you know, he was raised in Westchester, Pennsylvania, a small town, uh, that was very much Quaker in its, uh, you know, way of life. And although he grew up in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the Quaker influence was there all around him. And uh, in the 1930s, as a young adult, he moves to New York City, moves to Harlem, where he was suddenly in the largest African-American community in the country after being in this small, mostly white town. Um, and the 30s is the Great Depression, so he's getting involved in the protest movements. He actually joins the Communist Party for a short while, but realizes, no, this is not for me. And at the end of the 30s, he learns about Mahatma Gandhi and the work that Gandhi was doing in India against the British Empire to bring freedom and independence back to India and through nonviolent direct action, peaceful protests that bring people together rather than polarize further. And so this is, you know, he's moving in this direction. And in 1941, he intersects with pacifists at in an organization called the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which was a primarily religious-based organization of pacifists. He's hired as full-time staff. So now as, what was he, would he be? He would be 29 years old at that point. He was earning a simple living as a full-time activist. And, but this is also 1941, You know, war is broken out in Europe and in Asia. And at the end of the war, at the end of the year of 1941, the United States enters World War II. So how does one be a pacifist in the middle of a conflict like this, which if any war in U.S. history is considered the good war, it's World War II. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, and he goes to jail. Uh, Okay, I didn't realize that. At that time, he went to jail. Yes, he uh, refuses to cooperate with the military. Uh, He could have taken alternative community service, but he takes a firm position of non-cooperation and spends two and a half years in a federal prison, along with many other peace activists. Uh, And those years are traumatic years for him because uh, he's the Bureau of Prisons classified him as 
a notorious offender because as soon as he went to prison, he began organizing inmates, one against racial segregation within the prison and two uh, for a host of other issues like peace and economic justice and things like that. And so the prison administration tries to bring charges against him of sexual misconduct. You know, he's in a men's prison. He's oh, a gay and he's man. organizing. I see. And he was, he was, quote unquote, out in prison then? Because I don't recall he, that. Well, he's never, you know, in those days, people talk about being in the closet or wearing a mask. Mm. You, pre- mm-hmm. you were really gay, but you pretended to the world that you were heterosexual. Bayard never did that. When Bayard had a boyfriend, even in the 1940s, he brought him to social events. Really? That and did he, how did he introduce him? Uh, he probably introduced him as my friend. Okay. But it was so clear yes, that, that there was a, the relationship mm-hmm. that they had. So people knew without it being named. And what happens when he goes to prison is that finally it gets named because they bring him up on sexual misconduct charges. They put him in isolation. They transfer him to another prison so that he will have less freedom to cause disruption. Right. Less time to organize. Yes. (laughs) Um, But, you know, when he's let out in 1946, he is still working for the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And um, the fellowship had made the decision apropos of what we call intersectionality, that the peace movement should also be dealing with racial injustice because racial injustice has become the excuse or the structure for war and oppression around the world. You know, European imperialism in Africa, for Mm -hmm. instance. Um, And so in 1947... 14 years before the famous Freedom Rides of the early 60s, Bayard and a group of black and white men organize a a ride into the South where they refuse to accept blacks at the back of the bus or blacks in a different part of the train, and they go through Virginia and they go through North Carolina and in North Carolina they're finally arrested. Uh, He almost was victim to the violence of the Klan and came close to being lynched but but it provided a sense of this is what nonviolent activism for racial justice would look like. You do what needs to be done in a peaceful way. And this all happened prior to, um, for instance, Rosa Parks. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. This is, you know, Rosa Parks is 1955. Yeah. This is Bayard Rustin in 1947 wow. with a group of other men. And he does this in a number of places. He comes to Chicago. And, you know, Chicago in the 1940s and early 50s, restaurants, there wasn't a law that said do this, but restaurants would not allow integrated sections of the restaurant and Bayard would go in with another white activist and they would sit at a table together and get arrested. 
And he, you know, nothing stopped him from doing this. And meanwhile, while he's doing this, he's also organizing against the spread of nuclear weapons and the testing of nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, in the 1940s and 1950s, nations like France and mm-hmm. the U.S. and right. Britain were testing nuclear weapons in the atmosphere. And France was doing it in Africa, in the middle of their African colonies. And Bayard organized an international protest against that. So he had all of these various interests and understood, again, why it was important to be, um, to be present, uh, to be visible. And at the same time was living his life as an out, as much as he could be. Right. Black gay man. What kind of um, press would you say he was getting around his work at that time? Well, the and and those in the 1940s and the very early 1950s, the work that these activists are doing is still what you could consider being on the margins. Now, there there was press attention to the journey of reconciliation in 1947 and other efforts to uh, conduct demonstrations in Washington, D.C., but that were much smaller than what happened in the 1960s. Um, but, uh, but some of the activities that he engages in really do get, especially the anti-nuclear um, activities, really do get a lot of press attention. They don't necessarily create a lot of attention for Bayard Rustin. It's for the movement and the organizations, and that's Bayard's style. I was going to say, and that's what he would like, right? That's, that's what he wanted. That's ex- what, what mattered to him was the outcome, not fame exactly. or celebrity. He couldn't care less about that. Well, and then let's also then bring in his influence, I think is, is appropriate, uh, on and support of Martin Luther King, because I think people just assume that Martin just arrived and didn't have support or any kind of development, leadership development. Um, how did how did Bayard really impact Martin Luther King and 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 the um, eventual uh, fame and um, just the leadership of Martin Luther King? Right. The impact in the shortest version is the impact was huge. And how does that translate into actual developments? So, you know, as many Listeners may know it was late in 1955 that Rosa Parks in Montgomery, Alabama, refuses to move to the back of the bus. And while things like that had happened by individual action in a number of places in the South, what is different about this is that the community decides to back her and continue to boycott the buses until integration is allowed. And as that boycott started in the late 19, in late 1955 and into early 1966, the person then besides Rosa Park, who's seen as the chief organizer and visible symbol, is this minister in town, young minister in his 20s, uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Well, by the second or third month of the boycott, it's becoming national news. And so Bayard, who is in peace circles and uh, pacifist and racial justice circles in the North. People are hearing about it and Bayard is hearing about it. And he makes the decision to go down to Montgomery 
to meet the boycott leaders and try to be helpful. And he and Dr. King immediately click. Um, And Dr. King at that point, he had a vague awareness of Gandhi and nonviolence, but he was not committed to nonviolence. I mean, his house where he lived, he and his wife, Coretta, they had weapons in case they were attacked by white mobs. They had guns. Bayard basically tutored Dr. King in the full principle, principles of Gandhian nonviolent active resistance. And over a period of several weeks, uh, a few months, Dr. King embraces it and makes it the core philosophy of what's happening in Montgomery. Uh, During this time, as other examples of Bayard's influence, the first published piece that Dr. King has about the boycott and about what's going on was draft. The first draft was done by Bayard. Uh, Then uh, Dr. King is working hard in Montgomery. Bayard is the one who says to him, this can't just be about Montgomery. We need a region-wide movement. And Bayard, along with another activist, Ella Baker, draw up the plans and the structure for what becomes the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which becomes Dr. King's vehicle for the next 12 years. Now, at a certain point, word starts to circulate in Montgomery about Bayard and his homosexuality. And what will this discredit the movement? And so Bayard and Dr. King work out basically an agreement among themselves that Bayard will not become a staff person of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, but he will act as King's special advisor. So it's an informal, invisible role in the background so that Bayard can't be accused of there's a homosexual in this movement. And that was something that was certainly um, touched upon in the film uh, to the point of um, asking Bayard, and maybe this is when they had this this understanding, right, this agreement that he would be behind the scenes, he would be his advisor, but he wouldn't be as public. And do you think that that was um, uh, given enough credence in the film, or do you think it was overstated or just about... That, that it really was a concern and that they needed to lift it up in the film because this was a reality of, of Bayard's life while he was in the, you know, really immersed in the civil rights movement. Yes. Well, to think in terms of the, the actual history, the film, almost all of the film is about the spring Six, and summer of 1963, right, mm-hmm. but it begins with a short component set in 1960. Okay. Now, Bayard had been working closely with King from 1956 into 1960, planning events, providing advice. Uh, Bayard helped organize early marches on Washington in the late 50s that brought 10,000, 20,000 people that Dr. King spoke at and gave Dr. King a profile in the national press. And so they're still working together. But what happens in 1960, and this is where the film starts, is that Bayard and A. Philip Randolph together decide 
You know, enough is happening now in the South that with the presidential election of 1960, we should organize major demonstrations outside the Republican and the Democratic National Convention during the summer. And so they begin spreading the word and trying to do that in the first part of 1960. And what happens is that the NAACP and the Reverend Adam Clayton Powell, who is a black leader based in Harlem, who's in Congress, see it as an invasion of their territory. They're the ones who work in, inside the system. Those people are the protesters on the outside. Stay away from our conventions. And I would just say not understanding that we need we need all of that, right? Exactly. We need folks on the inside. We need folks on the outside to push toward the middle. And, and I would like to think that we've become a little bit more sophisticated than yes, that. And that the outsiders and the insiders need to be in dialogue exactly. with each other. That's exactly right. But it was that that created the break with Dr. King, because basically uh, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP and Adam Clayton Powell made it clear to Dr. King that if they endorsed this, if he endorsed this and kept working with Bayard, they would release the rumor that Dr. King and Bayard were having a sexual affair. And Bayard hoped that Dr. King would simply, that's ridiculous, I will not say no to Bayard. But it scared yeah. Dr. King. Right. And so, And it, it, you'll see this in the biography. The break with Dr. King in 1960, which lasted until the March on Washington organizing, represented the hardest in Bayard's life, the hardest period in Bayard's life, because those were the years when the civil rights movement in the South was exploding, and suddenly Bayard was marginalized from that and was completely involved with anti-nuclear peace movement activity. So he moved a little bit away from that yes. work. Um, but he continued doing work, which I think is really important. He just didn't say, I'm done with it. I can't do work in that area now, but I'm going to go on to work. Yes, he continued. He was doing full-time work. And the early 60s were a very important period in terms of uh, the movement against atmospheric nuclear testing. The, the pressure that protesters – Bayard organized protests like in four continents around nuclear weapons testing. And in 1963, an international agreement is reached to ban the atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons. And, you know, Bayard wasn't given credit for it because he was not a negotiator with governments. Right. Right. But his work helped make that possible. Well, you know, we're going to keep talking. We're not actually going to even take a break um, because I want to make sure that we we uh, cover a few other points before we close for today because it goes so fast, John. And this is such incredible uh, information and, and history that, honestly, as you know, many folks still don't know. That's right. And so as you continue, you know, thinking about his life um, after after the march, I'm curious to talk a little bit about what happened after the march after it was clearly very successful how was he then treated well a couple of things a word say the first thing that i'll say is that after the conflicts around organizing the march on washington byard's sexuality was never used against him again in the movements it was like 
it's been taken care of. We know that he's gay and he is still an organizer. So he never faced that again. But he still faced conflicts over, well, this insider-outsider perspective that you mentioned earlier. One of the things that Bayard realized after the March on Washington, and the March on Washington puts him on the cover of Time magazine, uh, he's. I don't think I recall that at all. Yes, really, he and he and um, a Philip Randolph, uh, oh, wow. and you know, major major news coverage. So he has a visibility that he's never had before. The fo- hey, let me just ask you: Has that been covered? Have we heard about that beyond? You know, when it actually happened for the people who who actually didn't see it happen. Is that something that's been raised? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's it's, you know, part of like who knows about this man other than that he was the organizer of the March on Washington. But a few months later, he was chosen to organize a boycott of the New York City public schools around racial segregation issues. And that was even larger than the March on Washington. It's like it involved half a million people in New York City. So he has a new stature. And what it leads him to do, in 1965, early 65, he publishes an article, which is probably the most widely read piece that he ever wrote. And it's called From Protest to Politics. And while he's speaking to all sorts of activists, he's especially addressing people in the black freedom struggle. And he's basically saying... Protest has been very valuable. I've done this for two decades. But as long as we remain protesters on the outside, we are dependent on other people making the decisions that affect our lives. And so in this, he's saying we need to move from protest to politics, not abandon protest, but also deeply engage with the electoral system and with the institutions of government so that we become the people who decide what this society looks like. And two things happen because of that. One is his fellow activists in the peace movement, because the war in Vietnam was just starting to gear up at that point, saw this as a betrayal. What? You're going to get involved with the Lyndon B. Johnson administration when they're doing this in Southeast Asia. And so he was seen as a traitor. But also, at the same time, A. Philip Randolph negotiates with labor union leaders in the AFL-CIO to create funding for a new organization, the A. Philip Randolph Institute, that Bayard becomes the director of, and that becomes his base for activism for the rest of his life. Incredible. Incredible. There's so much more here, uh, and there's so much more that you can find in this book, Lost Prophet, The Life and Times of Bayard Rustin, uh, that so much more that we won't be able to talk about today. But I also want to let folks know, in addition to the book being available, it is also available on Audible. That's right. Which is lovely because I am an audible uh, user, if you will, on a, on a regular basis. And so if you uh, want to check out uh, more, because there's so much more than we you know, certainly can talk about in an hour here about Bayard Rustin. Um, what's one thing that you would leave folks with um, when you think about the life of uh, Bayard Rustin? He, in my mind, he is the most important social justice activist in the United States of the mid-20th century. 
more of the change that happened can be traced to him, I think, than to, and his influence, spheres of influence, the people that he affected and trained, than is true for any other person, even though there are these other figures that, you know, have so much more fame. But Bayard was a critical person for creating the world that we have. He did the work. He did the work, and we are still feeling the impact of it now. I want to also just take a moment and make sure we mention all the good work you did at Gerber Hart. You were on the library uh, board for a while and also were board chair. Just say a little bit about Gerber Hart so people know about the importance of, again, uh, maintaining and preserving our history. Okay. Well, the Gerber Hart Library and Archives is a Chicago-based organization. Uh, it's located currently in Rogers Park, 6500 North Clark Street. Uh, it has a history going back to the early 1980s, and it has two things uh, that it offers. One, it has a huge circulating library of LGBTQ books that anybody can come to and check out these books for free. It's amazing to just walk down the aisles and see all these books. But also for 40 years, it's been collecting the records of Chicago LGBTQ history. Uh, organizations like, for instance, Amigas Latinas, uh, the papers of individual activists, uh, all of the publications that have come out of Chicago. And it's an incredible location for doing research on Chicago LGBT history going back probably as early as the 1950s. They have significant collections. So uh, visit it. Check they it do out. exhibits. Yeah. Take a look. Yes. Lots going on for everyone. Everyone should know more about this history because, again, uh, this is it's. It's our history. It's everyone's history. Thank you so much for being uh, with me today on Living Out Loud, John. It's been incredible. We could talk for another hour easily, and it really makes me want to go back. I think this time I'll listen to uh, the book on Audible. Um, but want to encourage you to get Lost Prophet, The Life and Times of Bayard Rustin. Uh, next week, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Francesca Royster, uh, and we're going to talk about her new book, Black Country Music, Listening for Revolutions, and I think it's going to be particularly timely now that Beyonce has come out with um, uh, a country uh, record or, you know, I think she's got an album coming, and people are a little up in arms about it. So this is the first time she's ever in any way uh, shown uh, the influence of country music in her music and in her performance. She is from Houston, y'all. So um, we're going to talk more about that. Um, I want to thank uh, Lucy Smith uh, for her music today. Um, you can always check Lucy Smith out at lucysmithjazz.com. And Devin, thank you for all of your help. Um, this has been an incredible Living Out Loud. So much more to talk about. Check out uh, The Life and Prophet, uh, The Lost Prophet, pardon me, The Life and Times of Bayard Rustin. And we will see you next week on Living Out Loud.